Hey, good morning, friends. Good to see you today. Ushers, come on down. We will take the offering together. And as they pass those baskets, I want to say thanks for giving. Uh, whether you're giving online, putting in the basket, however you're doing it, thanks for uh, partnering in ministry, making ministry happen, and uh, being faithful in your worship through your giving. Uh, I do want to just mention one quick thing, and we're not going to start ta- stop talking about it till it till it happens, and that's Night to Shine. We're only a few weeks away now from this awesome big event that so many of you have signed up to help and have helped in the past. Uh, You heard Dwight say we still need some more volunteers, so please sign up for that. We need a ton of help for this. But also, uh, this event is not something we have in our our normal church budget because it is so so special and so big. And over the years, you guys have been faithful in giving above and beyond your normal giving to help cover and making this event happen. So uh, over the next few weeks, uh, we'll, be, we'll be taking some offerings and you'll be getting some envelopes that are designated for Night to Shine specifically. So just wanted to let you know, keep an eye out for that. That's coming. And um, we appreciate you so much for making this event happen. It really is a, a big, fun, important night. And um, one of, I think, the best things our church does uh, throughout the year. So uh, thanks for that. Now, <clears throat> I don't know about you guys, but I know for myself, I tend to um, overestimate or overvalue my own knowledge and my own instincts from time to time. Uh, I found that when I, I push forward with something that I don't fully understand, is I tend to get myself in trouble. I don't know if you, you're in the same boat as me with that. Uh, my wife, Taylor, she uh, really loves to kayak. Summertime, she's usually on the water in some form of an, or another, and kayaking's a big part of that. Uh, we have our, our nice big gold minivan, and she gets those kayak racks up there so you can spot her coming from a mile away, right? That signal is just like, hey, I'm coming with those kayak racks up there. Um, I tolerate it. I tolerate kayaking. I like it. It's fine. She loves it. Um, so she goes a lot. I don't know, and she's got her whole system down for getting the kayaks up and how the straps go and how they hang so they don't get in the way of the the sliding minivan doors and all of that. So uh, she's got the system. She's got the plan. Me, I live in ignorance, and I'm happy to do so. Until, like a couple summers ago, I don't remember why, but she asked me to come help her with the kayak and get it up there. Now, I'm not going to take 100% of the blame for this because she did ask me, and I think that was a mistake uh, to ask me for help, but she asked so I went out and I uh, was helping her get it up. And, you know, it's pretty easy to get it up there. The big part is those straps, making sure they're in the right place. So I'm on one side of the minivan. She's on the other. And we're throwing straps over and tying them. And, and she's like, now, Matt, make sure this does here and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm just not listening, right? I am just not paying attention to what she says. I'm like, yeah, I got it. I got it. And I'm tying it. I'm doing it. And, and I've got that thing tied down, right? Okay, this isn't going anywhere. And I think I had it pretty good until I opened the sliding minivan door and I noticed one of the straps hanging down has this like little metal piece at the end. And as the door slides, it goes right over that metal piece and then I hear it. I hear that nice, that sound you love to hear, that nice crunch as it slides open. But then I heard an even worse sound. I heard Taylor. (laughs) Matt, what was that? And uh, you know I told you to put that there. Like, no, I didn't know that. So I just said it. Uh, I tend to get myself into trouble. I thought I had to figure it out. I, and, you know, the kayak would have held. I, I, my plan worked pretty well, what I had thought through. But my plan wasn't ideal. I should have listened, right? I should have listened instead of just going ahead and acting on my own assumptions of what I thought was right. 
Sometimes we need to trust in our lives that there is a plan instead of going ahead and making our own plan. Too often, I think we approach situations or maybe life in general with this sort of like bulldoze ahead approach when we should stop and listen and and maybe trust God and trust that maybe we might not know best in the situation. It's very easy to do. We all do it. Today we're going to dig into one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, absolute favorite chapters. This week and next week we're going to kind of approach this chapter in two sections. Um, Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32, where uh, we're going to come into the story of this man named Jacob and see how he does this very thing, where he goes ahead, bulldozes ahead with his plan instead of pausing and trusting God with his situation. So we're just going to jump right into Genesis chapter 32 and pick up the story with Jacob. This is um, starting in verse 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along, uh, or you can look on the screen, listen to my voice, however you want to do it. Here we go. Genesis 32, starting in verse 3. It says, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. We'll stop there. We're jumping into the story of Jacob. Now Jacob, he is Abraham's grandson, the son of Abraham's son, Isaac. God has worked uniquely in the life of this family. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God calls to Abraham and says, uh, follow me, and Abraham follows him, and then God makes promises to Abraham, promises that not only come true in Abraham's lifetime, but promises for the future. And then he reiterates that promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, and to Isaac's son, Jacob, who we're with now in our story. Now, when Jacob was a boy... He had a feud with his twin brother, Esau. Jacob tricked Esau into uh, giving him his birthright, which would be his share of his father's estate, the inheritance, among other things. Esau didn't like Jacob. It got so bad, in fact, that Esau wanted to kill Jacob. Very real, he wanted to kill Jacob. And when Jacob found out, he fled. And he went to go stay with his mother's brother, Laban. On his way to Laban, which would have taken a few days to journey there, God met Jacob on the road, gave him this wild vision, and spoke to him and, and promised Jacob some things. He said to Jacob that you will have more descendants than you can count. The earth will be blessed through your descendants. And God says, I will be with you always and watch over you. I will help you prosper. I will protect you, and my presence will be with you. So Jacob comes to Laban, stays with him. And wouldn't you know, Jacob develops a feud with Laban while he's there as well. Um, Jacob falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he says to Laban, hey, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. I'll work for you seven years in order to marry her. Laban says, deal. Well, seven years later, 
marriage, uh, the wedding night comes, and Laban had tricked Jacob into marrying not his daughter Rachel, but his older daughter Leah. Why'd you do that, Laban? Well, I can't marry off my younger daughter when I have an older daughter that needs to be married. Ah, rats. Jacob says, I'll work another seven years if I can also marry your daughter, Rachel. So he works another seven years and marries Rachel. Now, Laban um, treats Jacob poorly during his time there, aside from this whole marriage thing. And he tries to keep Jacob from gaining too much wealth. He doesn't really trust Jacob. So he strikes a deal with Jacob and said, hey, you keep working for me. Um, He's got sheep and cows and goats and flocks. And he says to Jacob, hey, for your payment for working for me, you can keep all the impure animals that are born. Which means basically any of the animals that are born with uh, spotted fur or dark fur that have blemishes, um, you can keep those. I'm going to keep all the pure animals that are nice and white and their coats are clean and all that. You keep all the impure ones. And wouldn't you know, God does his thing for Jacob again. And almost all the animals that are born under Jacob's care are born with spots and blemishes and dark fur. Jacob gets to keep those. And over time, his wealth and his estate grows because of it. He has herds and cows and flocks now. And Laban seems to be gaining less and less. So Laban wants to do something about it. He thinks Jacob's stealing from him. Jacob's up to shady business, maybe. And Jacob catches wind, so he's like, maybe I should get out of here. Now, remember, God had promised Jacob some things on his way to Laban. This is years and years later after he met him on the road with this vision and these promises. And God speaks to Jacob again in this moment of fear of Laban. God speaks to him again and says this in Genesis 31.3. He says, go back to the land of your fathers and your relatives and I will be with you. God speaks to Jacob again. Go home. My presence, my protection will be with you. He promises this, the same promise he made earlier. So Jacob, he gets his whole estate, right? His multiple flocks, he's got multiple wives, he has multiple children, he's got servants, he's got shepherds, he's got, he's got a lot. Jacob has become his own thing. And he gets his whole caravan and they decide to head back home. And on his way home, he realizes who might be waiting for him. His brother Esau. His brother who hates him. His brother, who he tricked multiple times as a kid. Esau, who the last Jacob knew, wanted Jacob dead. Now, Esau is living in a different land. It's kind of next to where um, Jacob and him grew up. And Jacob wouldn't have to travel through and see Esau on the way. But he says, you know, I've got to feel out out this situation with Esau because, you know, he might make good on his promises to kill me and, and come after me anyway. So he sends a messenger. This is what we read a moment ago. He sends a messenger to Esau with a message to feel out the situation. And the message that he sends is essentially this. He says, hey, I've been with Laban. Um, That's where I've been. And uh, now I've got flocks and herds. I've got children. I've got family. Esau, I think he's essentially telling him, I'm not coming after you. It's not like when we were kids anymore, Esau. I'm not trying to trick you or steal anything from you. I've got my own thing going on. I'm good. 
Hope you're good too. That's the message he sends to Esau. Message is designed to keep Esau from coming after him, right? I don't mean you any harm, brother. Just let's live and let live. Now, remember, Jacob is on his way back home because God spoke to him. It's God's initiative. It's his calling, which came with a promise, I'll be with you. Now, despite Jacob's many flaws, and he has many, he's seen God work in his life again and again to this point. He's heard God's voice multiple times. He's uh, received God's promises, and they've been coming true. He's watched them come true. He went from nothing but the clothes on his back when he left home, and now he's got all this wealth and flocks and herds and family and everything. But even though God had promised his presence, his protection for Jacob, and had been there for him so many times before, the thought of confronting his brother terrifies him. And where's your mind typically go when you are feeling afraid? Worst case scenario, bad outcomes. So hope, even even in the Lord, can be hard to find when we're focused on that, right? When we're focused on what ifs, it's hard to focus on what's true. So let's read on in the story. We'll go to verse six. The messenger returns to Jacob and says, well, we went to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that's left can escape. So the messengers return. We gave your message to Esau and they come back and tell Jacob, well, we told Esau and him and 400 men are coming our way. Where's Jacob's mind, right? Terrified, worst case scenario. Jacob assumes Esau is coming with a small army to kill him, to do what he said he was going to do all those years ago, to kill him. So Jacob comes up with a plan. He's going to divide his camp into two, and when they come and attack the one, the other one can escape and hopefully get out, right? He's trying to mitigate his losses. He's trying to make a plan and control things. And his plan is to sacrifice some of his people to save the rest. Notice what's absent from Jacob's thought process here. God. Jacob makes this plan without a thought about God. God, who has helped him so many times before, who has spoken to him multiple times, who's protected him, who's prospered him, whose promises he's watched come true in his life and the life of his father and grandfather. And despite all this, Jacob doesn't turn to God when he most needs to. Jacob's fear kind of, it puts him in control mode, right? The only person I can trust is myself uh, in such a desperate moment. Jacob fails to trust God more than himself, even though God has gotten him this far. And I think this is where a lot of us start to get into trouble in our lives. Or when we bump up and against certain situations, we, we act when we should listen. We fear when we should trust. We try to control the outcome ourselves 
I know for me, no matter how many times God has shown me that he's with me, that he's trustworthy, that he's good, I still find myself doing exactly what Jacob does here, feeling anxious, coming up with a plan. Okay, we got to do this. We got to do this. And then if I remember, what do I do? I ask God, tack on a prayer, God, make my plan work. The Bible tells us and proves to us God is trustworthy in everything. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says it very clearly. Some of you might have this verse memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Jacob, I think, is doing the exact opposite of what (laughs) Proverbs 3 says. He's leaning on his own understanding. And his path uh, doesn't seem very clear, doesn't seem very straight. I think we tend to forget that sometimes. When fear and anxiety come, when situations are unclear, we make plan, we try to control, we try to do our best with what we know. And if we remember, we tack on a prayer, God, God, make my thing work, rather than coming to him in the first place and trusting him with it. That's what Jacob does. He makes his plan. Then he comes to God and tacks on that prayer. Here's what it says in the next few verses. Verse 9, then Jacob prayed. After he made his plan, then he prayed. And his prayer says this, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and to your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan. Now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He makes his plan Then he prays. Jacob expresses in this prayer, I think, some truth. He acknowledges what God has said to him in the past. But if we pay close attention, close attention to the words, I think we can notice something. He doesn't trust God. No, if you pay attention to the words... And the wording, and then the Hebrew grammar indicates this, that, that Jacob is actually trying to manipulate God into doing what he wants rather than trusting God to act on his behalf. Here's verses 11 and 12 again. He says, save me from the hand of my brother Esau. I'm afraid he'll come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. God, you don't want the women and children to get hurt, do you? Kind of throws that in there. And then he says, But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which can't be counted. He's putting God's words back right in God's face. You said this, God. Remember, you said this, so do it. I'm going to hold you to it. Brings up the women and children. This prayer isn't a real prayer. Jacob is talking at God. Bless my plan, Lord. You wouldn't want the women and children to get hurt. You promised, Lord. You promised I'd be okay. It's not the right posture. What would be the right posture for Jacob to take here? Lord, I trust you. Help me. Help me. I trust you. I've seen you work in the past, God. I know you can do it again. 
try, I trust you. It's very different than what he says. You said you would help me remember God, so do it. So Jacob goes ahead with his plan, right? He divides his group into two. He, um, so that if Esau attacks one, the other one can run away. Those 400 men are coming. So let's, uh, let me read the last bit of the plan here that he comes up with. Verses 13 to 21 says this. Divides his camp in two. Praise to God, tacks on that prayer, then says he spent the night there and from what he had, um, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to the servants, go ahead of me, keep some space between the herds. And he instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who are you, who do you belong to, where are you going, who are these animals in front of you? Then you're to say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a gift to my Lord Esau. He's coming behind us. He instructed the second and the third and the others who followed the herds. You're to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he'll receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Got to admit, Jacob's a pretty crafty guy. It's a pretty good plan. Right? He divides his camp into two, and then he says, I'm going to overwhelm Esau with gifts. I'm going to send him all this stuff, try to pacify him, so when uh, he sees all the gifts, he'll say, ah, Jacob must not be that bad a guy. I'll leave him alone. It's fine. Kind of pacify him in that way. Some scholars look at this as Jacob is trying to actually inflate Esau's 400 men small army to make it impossible for him to attack. He sends in several waves, right? 220 goats. I don't know if you've ever met a goat. They don't, they don't comply. 220 sheep and rams. 30 camels plus their youth. 30 cows and bulls. 30 donkeys. Plus all the servants and the shepherds who are going with these gifts, which would be more than a few. Um, so now this nice slim fighting force of 400 men has become this whole thing. There's animals, and, and Jacob's servants are in there as well, and, and now it's kind of inflated. They can't move as quickly. They're going to make a lot more noise. Plus, now, when fighting breaks out, Jacob's men are all mixed in there too, which could complicate things. Um, that plus Jacob's camp being divided. This is not a bad plan. If Esau is coming to kill Jacob, this might actually work. But there would be a cost. Jacob's plan. Here's the truth about Jacob's plan. Is um, it's unnecessary. Because, as we find out in the following chapter, Esau has not come to kill Jacob. See, Jacob's mind assumed and went to the worst possible outcome. Esau is coming to kill me. He failed to turn to God in the first place and trust and hope for what God had promised, right? Presence and protection. God, you initiated this move. Help me. But his fear and anxiety pushed him into this desperate control mode that he didn't need to be in in the first place. 
In the next chapter, the story of their uh, reuniting, Esau and Jacob, after all this planning, after all this fear that Esau is coming to kill him, this is what happens when they reunite in Genesis 33. It says, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And Esau looked up, saw the women and children. Who are, who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, these are her, the children God has graciously given your servant. He said, this is my family. Then the female servants and their children approached, bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel came and bowed down. And Esau asked, what was the meaning of all those flocks and herds? What was all that stuff you sent my way? Esau hadn't even thought about that. He said, to find favor in your eyes. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Not what Jacob had expected. God had initiated this move and promised him provision and protection. And even though God worked for Jacob's good again and again, Jacob didn't trust God with the plan. Jacob's plan turned out to be unnecessary. If only he had listened and trusted. It's Proverbs 3 again. Something I think we all need to remember from time to time. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Trusting God is one of those things we think we understand until it comes time to do it. I think many of us can say, I trust God. Yeah, I trust God. But when things get hard or or you're feeling anxiety, or the future is a little um, unclear, I bet you, like me, are far more likely to do what Jacob did. To start spinning. To start planning. And then, if you remember, to say, God, please make my plan work. Is... Is that what trusting God looks like? I don't think so. But at the same time, I have to question, is just waiting around for some sort of divine revelation, not planning, not doing what you can in certain situations, is that trusting God as well? Or is there some balance here between those extremes? What does trusting God look like? Now, now I don't think there's a clear cookie-cutter answer for every situation, for every person um, that's true 100% of the time. But I do think there's some principles that we can uh, sort of uh, use and employ to help us trust God when it comes to those moments of where fear, anxiety, future, uncertain, bump up against us. A few principles. Let me just mention quickly three. Um, I think first, trusting God is a choice. It's not really a feeling. In fact, it's our feelings that get in the way of trusting God. Fear and anxiety and all that. Or maybe overconfidence even sometimes. Trusting God is a choice to say, I know I'm feeling this way, but I'm going to pause. And my first move is going to be toward God. It's not going to be to go to the worst case scenario. It's not going to be to find step A, B, and C. It's, it's pause. Whew. 
God, I trust you. It's choosing to do that. Our first move, before any plan or scheme is drawn up, our first move should be towards God. Second, I think it's helpful to remind yourself about what's true. The promises God makes in his word and scripture. His Holy Spirit's presence and protection with you. To remind yourself that your salvation is secure no matter what. That no matter how bad things look right now, Jesus still died on the cross. And if I believe in him, the future is going to be awesome. I think it's also reminding how God has worked in the past. Right? God, I've seen you do this before. Why can't you do it again? Remind yourselves of those things. And I think that truth will help bring a less anxious perspective. And uh, third thing, I think this is always good, is find something to be grateful for. What can you be thankful for? What can you rejoice in? Even when things look a little rough. And even what you're needing to trust God with is scary or hard. Um, There's no shortage of things that we can be thankful for. Look for how God has worked and blessed you, the simple things in life, and, and remember that he is good and he is with you. If we don't do these sorts of things, I, I think our plans are just that. They're our plans. Let me tell you about a time I failed to trust God. Went ahead with my own plan. Um, when we moved to the Cape, my family and I, back in 2015, I was going to a small church there to be the youth and children's pastor. And we had a one-year-old son, Jack. Our second son, Levi, wasn't born yet. And... Um, it was a step of faith for us to move there. When I tell you that the salary was small for this position, I mean it was small. <laughs> it was a step of faith. Made easier because my wife was working full time back then. So we said, you know what? We can do this. We're not in it for the money because we're not. We're in it to serve and we can make this work because you're working. Um, Less than a year later, Levi was born, our second child, and we made the decision then that Taylor was going to stop working. Big part of that was because childcare was pretty much equal to what her salary was at the time. So we said, okay, it's probably, let's, let's have a, one of us be home at least with the kids, and I think that's valuable. We made that decision together. So we went from two salaries to one small one, from one kid to two kids, <laughs> And um, we were financially desperate. We were making very unpleasant decisions financially. Things you don't want to have to decide. Um, We were receiving uh, subsidies for food from the state of Massachusetts. Our health care was totally covered by the state because according to them, we were living in poverty. So uh, what would be your approach to this situation? Typically, it's, well, we need to earn more money. And we did. We were in a rough spot. Can't live like this. I have a responsibility to my family, to my children, to my wife. We need to survive. And I was anxious about our finances and our future more than I was grateful for the things we were doing, where we got to live, Cape Cod, who gets to live there, somewhere, uh, it's amazing, and the house we were provided with, all these things. The health of our family. So I began to plan instead of pray. And I was telling God, well, what about this God rather than thank you for what I have? 
So we started planning. How can I earn extra income for my family? I'm working more than full-time hours uh, doing ministry. uh, And at some point, I need to be home and hang out with my wife and kids. And it's all a weird balance because, and this is true for anyone in vocational ministry, is, again, we're not not trying to make money. At least, I hope we're not. (laughs) We're here to serve. We believe God has called us to something. I'm here to serve. Serve him and his church. Not to not to make all kinds of bucks. But there's a reality of just needing to survive. And that balance can be really hard of of trusting God's daily provision and his plan and what he's called me to while at the same time looking at our uh, budget and everything and going, oh boy, this is tough. And I was caught off balance in that. So um, we need more income, but a life of ministry, right? It's a life of trusting God to provide. So what did I do? You know, I made my plan. What can I do that's flexible? I can earn extra income in my off hours. I started driving for Uber. Signed up, started doing it, and I had my little 2011 Nissan Sentra. It's like, pretty good on gas. We'll zip around. We'll drive people. We'll make some money. Awesome. My first weekend driving for Uber was Memorial Day weekend. Now, I don't know if you've been to Cape Cod on Memorial Day weekend, but it's, uh, it's hard to take a left-hand turn. <laughs> And uh, so cashed in. It was awesome. Is this what this is going to be like? Oh, man, we're raking in the cash now. But the next month or two was a much different story. Even though it was summertime, Cape Cod, you'd think it'd be, you know, no shortage of people needing rides. It was tough. Cape's very spread out. It's hard to know where people are at any given moment. And I was, uh, I was getting so few rides. I was out till 1 a.m., 2 a.m., Week, nights, weekends, trying to make extra money. In fact, I started to lose money because of the cost of gas and driving around. But I was determined to figure it out. Until, you know, I've talked about a car accident I was in. Maybe if you've been around a while, you've heard me talk about it. Car accident that given me some back problems. Um, well, that accident happened one night when I was driving home from a night of Uber driving unsuccessfully. I was driving down Route 6 in East Ham, coming, uh, coming south, south, north, south, and um, someone took a left-hand turn across traffic and T-boned me, spun out, hit a pole, all that. Um, totaled the car, all the airbags went off, it was, it was terrible. It's all the, the smell of the car crash, like, you know all the, if you've been in a car wreck, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I stopped driving for Uber that night, <laughs> partly because I didn't have a vehicle, um, But unbeknownst to me, over the weeks and months prior to this, the governing board and the elders of our church had been talking about pay increases, and a few weeks after that accident, they had approved and started to give us a significant pay increase. Now, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying God caused me to get into a car accident. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that God asked me to trust him for provision as I served him in his church. And when I took matters into my own hands and made my own plans and, and took him out of the equation, thinking I needed to do it myself, not only was I unsuccessful, but the aftermath of it, God showed me, Matt, I had you covered. You should have trusted. My plan was my plan, not God's plan. And you know, this is, a, this is a recurring thing I find in my life. Even when I write sermons, when I'm up here talking, it's always an exercise in trusting God. Now, to you, that might seem obvious, right? 
who are talking through Bible, preaching, all that, but um, <laughs> trusting God over trusting my own creativity and cleverness, which although I do have an abundance, only gets me so far, right? Every single time I write a sermon and I prepare it during the week and I come in on Sunday and I'm like, this is the one that's going to change your life. When I'm feeling so good about it, you know what happens? I come here, I preach, and you guys go about your day. And I'm not saying I need you to come tell me I'm awesome or anything like that. Please no, that's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. When I come in and I'm feeling like, well, Matt, we can't hit them all out of the park. God, you're going to, it's God, it's all you today. Those are the days when I see God work in your lives, where I, you come to me in tears asking for prayer, where you come to me and say, God is talking, he is doing something. And this is not about me, it is not about my words, and I don't need you to come affirm my preaching or anything like that. All I'm saying is, when I am weak and my plan is not great, God is the one who does the heavy lifting. And he is the one who's at work. At my old church, I went through this um, one Sunday. I was preparing to preach, and then um, Saturday came, and I woke up, and I thought I had prepared a good message. I woke up Saturday with a great sense of unease about Sunday morning. And I don't know why. It's like, ah, it's a good message. But I felt anxious and uneasy. So I went to the church office, and I started to pray. I, and my prayer was, God, please help me feel better about my sermon. And he didn't. <laughs> so I said, okay, scrap it. And I spent that day writing a new sermon. Now, Saturdays are precious. I spent time with my family. But God was speaking. I think God was speaking that day. And I trusted him in that process. I could have just said, you know what? What I did is good. It's going to be great. It's gonna, we're going to go. And it... But God was telling me, no, Matt, there's some better plan Please trust me, and I did. At least I hope I did. And then that day I preached, and it was someone's first Sunday at our church, and of course, comes up in tears, and we get to, I get to spend that time ministering. God opened that door because of, I believe, because I trusted him. I didn't trust my plan, I trusted him, and because of that, God worked in that person's life. And I, please know I'm not tooting my own horn or thinking I'm awesome because I'm not. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you that when we trust God over our plans, he works in bigger ways than we can imagine when we try to work ourselves. And I can only speak from my experience in this, this is my life and what I do, and, and this is how I try to strike the balance, planning and trusting. And I don't think these are exclusive ideas. It's not like planning things is bad. You should. You have knowledge. You have wisdom. You have experiences. You should absolutely plan and prepare and do all those things. So many times in life, those things overlap, planning and trusting. But the problems tend to come along when God gets left out of the equation or when we tack him on afterwards and say, God, make the thing I want to do happen. Bless my plan. Instead of coming to him first and trying to tune in in that posture of trust with what he's doing, he's saying, and he's showing you. 
when Jacob hears that Esau and his men are coming, what's the first thing that happens? Go back to our story, verse 7. He hears Esau and 400 men are coming. It says, in great fear and distress, Jacob divided his camp. Jacob started making decisions out of fear instead of turning to God in trust and confidence. And I believe if he had paused and prayed, perhaps Jacob would have saved himself a lot of heartache, a lot of anxiety. He would have remembered that God had called him and spoken to him specifically and prospered him his whole life. All along the way, God's presence was with Jacob, showing him the way. And when we trust God, he turns our fear into confidence. Not confidence in me, but confidence in him who has worked in my life all along the way, who has worked in your life all along the way. Now, your plans might work. They might be clever. They might be good. But will your plans solve the problems of your life? Will your plans give you peace? Will your plans give you assurance? The Apostle Peter reminds us in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 7, to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, he tells us, Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. In every situation, turn to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He turns fear into confidence. He turns anxiety into peace. His plan is good. You don't have to rely on yourself to control every single thing that is causing you fear and anxiety because God's got you. If we trust him first, he will give you peace in the face of anything and everything. Now, the biblical definition of faith, that word faith, it's not uh, an intellectual thing. It's not believing the right things about God. That's not what faith means. The biblical definition of faith is to trust. It's actually to trust God with your most precious thing, your own life, your day-to-day, your waking, every waking moment. It's trusting him with you. So faith means to trust God with your very life. I want to end today's message with someone else's words. Someone who can say things a lot better than I can. You probably know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German uh, pastor and theologian in the early 20th century. Um, He's most famous for his opposition to the Nazi party and Hitler. Bonhoeffer even um, took place in a... um, assassination attempt a plot against Hitler's life that failed 
On April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer was um, executed in the Flossenburg concentration camp. He had been arrested sometime earlier. Now, throughout his life as a pastor and a theologian, Bonhoeffer, he saw the church in Germany change. As the Nazi party took over, the church, out of fear, acquiesced to the Nazis and allowed them to use the church as a mouthpiece, spreading propaganda. They cut sections out of the Bible that they wouldn't talk about. The church became state-sponsored. Now, Bonhoeffer recognized this and said, this is not good. And he and some other church leaders in Germany started what would become called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church was called that because they confessed the long-standing biblical truths about who Jesus is and what the church is supposed to be. They preached the gospel, not propaganda. They called men and women to real faith and discipleship. Stood in opposition to what was happening in churches all across Germany. And I'd say if anyone knew about trusting God day to day in this sort of real, real practical way for his very life, I think Diedrich Bonhoeffer is one of those guys. He put himself right in the crosshairs of some very dangerous people. Seven years before um, he was killed, this is seven years to the day, April 9th, 1938. Bonhoeffer, he was preaching to a group of uh, confirmands. So young men and women who were going through confirmation in the Lutheran church that he was pastoring. Now, that process is basically you get baptized as a baby, and then when you're of a certain age, you get confirmed. You say, yes, I confirm my faith. I confirm that my baptism means something to me today. So they're professing their faith, these young people. And um, in his sermon that day, he speaks about the importance of trusting God every day. Here's what he says. Your belief, which you profess today with all your hearts, demands to be one anew tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. Indeed, it demands to be one anew with every new day. God gives us always just precisely so much faith as we need for the present day. Faith is the daily bread which God gives us. Either we receive it anew every day or it decays. Every morning brings a new struggle to push through. A new struggle to push through all the unbelief, through all the littleness of faith, through all the vagueness and confusion, through all the faint-heartedness and uncertainty to reach faith and wrest it from God. Every morning of your lives will begin with the same prayer. I believe, dear Lord, help my unbelief. Would you stand, church, as we close in prayer? We we believe, dear Lord, help our unbelief. Help us to trust you when fear and anxiety overwhelm, when we feel like our plans might be perfect, when we're trying to control, Lord, help us to pause 
to remember what is true, to see things from a different perspective, and to trust you with whatever it is that's before us. God, send us out today with a renewed sense of faith and trust, not just for ourselves, but for the sake of your kingdom and your mission here through our church in Vermont and beyond. And God, would we see you and experience you in new and greater ways because our trust is becoming day-to-day more real. Help us, Lord, with this. Bless us, Lord, with this. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, church. Oh, it's been good to see you today. We'll see you again next week. Stay warm. God bless.